as is our habit as we go through Romans 9 and 10 and 11. We are reciting a section which we are actually on together, Romans 10, before each message. Let's stand and say this passage in unison again this morning, please, as you are able. I appreciate Jay mentioning that. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A guy I went to seminary with wrote a little booklet called, with an intriguing title, How Good is Good Enough? He was asking the question, how righteous do you have to be for God to accept you? You know, the Jewish prophet Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Jesus was born, he actually had a rude awakening in the Lord's presence. Ostensibly, a Jewish prophet would be in good stead with God, would he not? If we would have interviewed him before Isaiah 6, he would probably have told us, hey, I'm in good shape with God. But when he was ushered into the presence of God, there's something he realized about God and something afresh that he realized about himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, he said. He was captured with the glorious holiness of God, this sinless perfection in his person. And then he said, I am undone, a man of unclean lips. So he realized his sinfulness in a very significant way. He was not prepared to meet the Lord. That's a tragedy. But a greater tragedy was... He thought he was prepared to meet the Lord. Now, this is one dilemma I want none of you to be involved in, thinking you're way okay with God. But when the dead, small, and great stand before God, then to realize, hey, wait a minute, I don't have the right stuff to be accepted. But I don't want to leave you in despair because the good news about Jesus is that in God's gracious gift, we can be gifted what we need to be found acceptable to him. The psalmist asks in Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who is it, Lord, that's able to live in your presence? That's a way of asking, back to that intriguing title, how good is good enough? The answer of that 
to that question probes the nature of righteousness. Just what kind do we need to have? Now, in order to get into the Boston Marathon, you have to have a qualifying time that meets their standard. Uh, now, in Cincinnati, we have the Flying Pig, and it's a great event for the community, and uh, a lot of people get involved. But uh, what is true is that uh, any hack can sign up to run the marathon and the Flying Pig. Well, I, I could sign up to run the marathon and the Flying Pig. And as long as I had an electric bike and it was a clear day, I think it would go okay. I think my marathon days are over. Of course, I've never had any marathon days. <laughs> but in order to get to the Boston Marathon, the gold standard, and I think several people from our church have reached such a status along the way, you have to have a qualifying time that passes muster. Now some, when they think of God, think of the necessity to have some personal qualifications that would make you acceptable to him. And when you poke them and ask them, hey, you know, what about you and God? Oh, I'm, I'm fine because in their own minds, they have concluded that they are arranging their life in a particular way that's going to lead them to qualify, uh, to relate to the living God. What if I told you that none of our right stuff would ever qualify us to be in good stead with God? What if I told you that what it takes is a person, a savior, a redeemer, a lamb? What if it was in knowing Jesus that we are brought to be qualified through the gift of righteousness Welcome to the book of Romans and the discussion about the meaning of the gospel. This great gospel gift of righteousness that comes to us by faith. Now here we are in Romans, this section, Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. It's written by a first century Jewish man, the Apostle Paul. And he's really concerned about his Jewish kindred, his extended family. So he stops and talks about Jewish people and Jesus and believing in Jesus. Of course, they were all disturbed from the time of Abraham, millennia past. They were God's favored people. He picked out Abraham through whom his family, he was going to reveal himself to the earth. They had such a glorious heritage. They were there at Sinai to receive the Torah, the law of God. They had King David. They had the prophets and they all foretold when he would come, the Messiah. And Jesus came and they were indifferent and rejected him and he was crucified. And then the resurrected Lord called some followers together and said, go tell other people about him. And the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, started to believe in Jesus. And churches broke out. And the Jewish people were scratching their head. And all the while, the Apostle Paul is on his knees asking God, please open the hearts of Jewish people to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so in the first century, they were asking the question, 
what went wrong with the Jewish folk? So Paul is answering that question in Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. Now in this context, in this passage that we look at this morning, he's contrasting two views of how to get righteous. One we could, if you allow me to use a hyphen this morning, let's hyphenate it as law hyphen righteousness. That is, we are made right with God by doing the right things and then qualifying. And then let's contrast that with faith hyphen righteousness, which has nothing to do with our behavior and everything to do with God's actions for us in Christ and his offer of the free gift of righteousness. So that's what's going on. Now, this is actually a continuation of where we stopped the last time we were together. That was in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, where it says Christ is the end of the law. Now, that English word end does not give due justice to this very important word that's behind it. As Paul wrote it, uh, Christ is the ending completion of the law. Christ is the fulfillment of of the law. Everything that was demanded and necessitated by the law was realized in the perfections of the life of Jesus. And so he's just finished talking about Christ being the end of the law, Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, and he comes into verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. Let's just call that law hyphen righteousness. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Paul's basically saying, if you're going to go with the law, you need to go all the way through. And who can keep the law all the way through? But the righteousness based on faith, let's call this faith hyphen righteousness, says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this morning, in looking at these glorious nine verses, I want to go three different directions. First, I want to contrast law-righteousness with faith-righteousness. Two completely different locusts of trust. By the way, where is our faith placed this morning? Upon what are we relying? That's what Paul's getting at here. I want to talk about that. Secondly, I'm going to talk about how that Christianity, and you heard the term heart here, Christianity is a matter of the heart. And we're going to talk about that. And finally, thirdly, he, we will summarize his three statements of grace in these great verses. That's where we're headed. 
Number one, law righteousness and faith righteousness are different. That's what he's discussing in chapter 10 in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. Now note two different thoughts that he has. First, law righteousness is about our heroic measures to save ourselves. Notice the Herculean effort that is described. Achieving the heights of heaven. Uh, burrowing into the depths of the earth. What, what, what is this about? What's going on? It's an effort to get to heaven to bring God down. Scaling the heights. Who's going to go? It's an effort for our religious leader who has died to burrow into the netherworld, into the abyss, and bring him back from the dead. By the way, isn't it interesting that religious leaders that have populated human history, there's something that's all the same about them. And it's this, they've all died. And their tomb still exists. And their mortal remains in whatever form they are in, are in that tomb. One of the things that makes Christianity distinct is that the tomb is empty. Even from that first Easter morning, the record in the text is this, he's not here. He is risen just as he said. Now that has a way of changing the whole calculus. But notice this quest, and it, it's described in epic form. Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Notice, it's this effort to acquire a Savior through our effort who will save us. Now, this week was the fifth anniversary of the rescue of that soccer team from the cave in Thailand. Those young men, uh, around 11, 12, and 13 years old, uh, were at a soccer tournament and wandered into the catacombs of a cave system that was quite elaborate right before it started a tragic rainstorm that dumped a lot of rain and began to fill the cave and they were trapped and couldn't get out. Well, as soon as it was ascertained where they were, first uh, professionals from Thailand, then from all of Asia, then from all over the world, worked to extract them from this cave. If you haven't seen the movie, it's, if, you can, if your nerves can stand it, it's, it's really, really something. Um, this was the fifth year anniversary and um, there was a special British diver. Here's his picture with uh, the only English-speaking person in the soccer team, Adul Salmon is the young man's name. He's standing next to a Brit named Rick Stanton. Rick was a professional diver in all of these really risky things, and it's amazing. It took them five hours of diving and proceeding through the catacombs to get to the cubicle where they were holed up and then to get them out they had to sedate them and then put the masks on them take them out they got them out after several hours and would have to re-subliminate them 
and then get them out to the end. I mean, it was an extraordinary rescue. And the first guy that found them in that hole was this elite diver named Rick Stanton. He stuck his head up and he said, how many are here? Are you all right? And it was a dual salmon who uh, spoke up, the only English speaker, and he represented him, a bit of a leader. He helped the team through, what was it, 11 days? Was it 13 days of surviving? And then when they got him out, it was raining, and uh, they were, in the mercy of God, they were all rescued. Well, uh, a private school in New York City, the master's school, uh, thought that's the kind of young man we want to have at our school. So they, of course, quite famously had him do his high school work at this school, and it was time for graduation at the master's school. And who would they have come other than this heroic Rick Stanton, another human being that helped 13 marooned human beings get out? Oh, and it was the equivalent of scaling the heights into heaven and going to the netherworld and extracting them out, and it was great. Now, some people view salvation like that. They view the deliverance that we need as something we better transact, that we better act so this can come apart. That story is a story about effort expended in trying to be saved. Now, the effort expended in keeping the law is great and takes heroic measures, but it's just never successful. If you choose to live by the law, there's no room for error. That's Paul's point in verse 5 when he says, the person who does the commandment shall live by them. You know, go all the way. You like the law? Good. You know, are you keeping the law in every respect? Now, Karl Barth said, of course, that there is one exception to this keeping of the law. The man, we would say the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has perfectly kept the law of God, and it is Jesus Christ. We aren't that good. We need Jesus. Law righteousness will take us down very discouraging alleys where we will simply realize we don't have the right stuff. But then God provides, the second thought here is God provides the gift of righteousness to everyone who will believe. You say, Eric, this is ringing familiar. I mean, you preach through Galatians, here you are in Romans. This is, sounds like a rerun. Well, that's absolutely what it is. Paul is parading grace before the readers yet again. This is what makes the good news so good. It's free. It's not earned or deserved. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? You don't need the heroic measures to go get Jesus and somehow convince him to come down or to descend into the abyss and find Jesus and say, hey, will you please be raised from the dead so we can have some semblance of hope? No, this has already taken place. It's already been provided. It's a work already accomplished. And so now we are invited to simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That passage in Acts 16, read this morning by Lisa. The Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? The answer was not, you better figure out how to get to heaven and convince Jesus to come down here to earth. You better figure out how to get to the netherworld. You better figure out how to get him back from the dead. You better figure out how to keep the law in every respect, every jot and tittle. You better get her down or you will not be saved, be delivered from the consequence 
of our sin. No. It was simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why believe on him? Because he's the one who came down. He's the one who offered his life. He's the one who was buried and God brought him up from the dead and offers to give us the hope of eternal life. Now notice the basis of our righteousness, the basis of our hope, the righteousness based on law-keeping, heroic measures to convince Christ to save us. No, it's based on faith in a work by Jesus, finished and perfectly accomplished. We've been over this before in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. The wages of sin is death. The attempt to be righteous enough will lead us inevitably to the realization that we are not righteous enough. The law's purpose is to be a tutor. What are we being tutored in? Our inability to keep the law. Remember Paul reasons and uses the logic in, was it Romans 4? You know, until I read Do Not Covet, I did not realize that all manner of covetousness exists in my own heart. But then when I read that, I realized it. So the law reveals sin and our need, and Christ offers forgiveness, hope, and life. Embracing Jesus Christ is coming to rely upon him, placing our faith in him. We are then made right with God. Now this comes to fore in the Jewish question. How does a Jewish man come to Christ? How does a Jewish woman come to Christ? How does a Jewish boy or Jewish girl come to Christ? Same way, remember, listen for the phrase, there is no distinction. The same way any Gentile does, that is realizing their sin. Realizing his Christ and calling out to God with a promise, according to this passage, to be saved and delivered. Now notice how those are two completely different thoughts about how to know God. One defined by law hyphen righteousness, which is debilitatingly horrible because we can't keep the law. The other is faith hyphen righteousness, which is gloriously wonderful because we get what we don't deserve. That's grace. And we are kept from what we do deserve, the punishment of our sin because of Jesus' death on the cross. That's mercy. And we come to the joy of eternal life. Not based upon our heroics, but on Christ's heroics when he offered himself for us. Remember the shorthand in the New Testament for Jesus. He loved us and gave himself for us. Eric, I want to understand Jesus. Just give it to me in the irreducibly simple. Okay, he loved us and gave himself for us and now invites us to believe on him. Now, secondly then, we come to possess the gift of righteousness in our heart's response to Jesus. Notice verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You say, man, let's stop. You Baptists are always talking about being saved. What's wrong with you? Why do you do that? Well, first I would argue that the term saved is a term that we find in the Bible. 
The experience of being saved is an experience described by those who believe in Jesus. And we need to be saved. Eric, what does that term mean? It means to be delivered from the consequences of our sin. Say, Eric, what's that? Well, just think hell. An eternal separation from God as a result of God's justice and his holiness because we wanted nothing to do with him and loved to possess our sin. But for a person who is saved, they place their faith in Jesus and are delivered from the consequence of sin because the consequence of our sin, for those of us who are saved by believing in Jesus, fell on Jesus at the cross and he resolved it there. It's why he said right before his last words, it is finished. Then he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. The job is done. The debt has been paid. The condemnation has been resolved. It's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's how he begins the chapter. You remember how he ends Romans chapter 8? There is nothing that will now separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We belong to him. He purchased us. Now it's true that C.S. Lewis said Christianity is a thinking man's game. Our mind matters. But Jonathan Edwards has a stress, the colonial preacher, and I appreciate it, when he said that um, Christianity is a matter of the heart. The Lord is running after our hearts this morning. Where are our hearts? Say, Eric, my heart pumps blood. So does mine. But in the scripture, the heart is used as the seat and center of our life. The wellspring of what we aspire for. So the question, where is your heart this morning, is a fair question. By the way, where is your heart this morning? What is your heart following? I don't know, have you been to a little girl soccer game lately? Well, you ever watched a little girl soccer game and looked, and there she'll be cutest things. I mean, her, her uniform is really cool. I mean, the, the shin pads are in the right place with all the right socks, and it's all coordinated dress. And you look, and there she is. She's picking dandelions in the backfield. The ball's going up and down the court, and she is searching for the four-leaf clover there and just enjoying the daylights out of wherever she is on field. Some might look out and say, well, I'll tell you what, that girl's heart is not in soccer. She's just not into soccer out there today. Well, you know what's true? A whole lot of humanity's heart is not into God. Their heart's not in it. What about you? What about my heart? What about yours? Now watch this order. Let's think of two in two different directions. First, faith in Christ is rooted in our hearts and is more than mental assent plus a profession of faith. Look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Remember, that's declared righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, it is true that one-third of authentic faith is mental assent. What is mental assent? Well, there 
for a couple thousand years, the church has discussed faith and what it is. What does it mean, Eric, to believe? And they've discussed it in a definition that includes three parts and the necessity of all three parts in there. Once I bought a tripod, a tripod it was a cheap one. I should have bought one more expensive. And what I realized was you have to have all three functional legs or it doesn't work right. So I had two perfect legs, and I had this one that was a little shy and lazy. So I turned the clip down, but it wouldn't hold the leg. So we'd get all set for a picture, and you know, it was one of these remote things. You could have the camera work. So I'd set the camera up. We'd get all in position, get ready to go, and I'd see it, and it'd just take a slow fade in the back. I thought, man. So I'd you know, use duct tape and try to fix it up really good. But uh, um, you, you have to have all three legs and a tripod for it to work. Here's the three legs of authentic faith. One is a knowledge of the facts. If you don't know about Jesus, you can't believe in him. That's where Paul's going next. We'll come to Romans 10, 17. How can they believe on someone that they've never heard about? And how can they hear about Jesus unless we tell them? By the way, did you have a chance to talk to anybody about Jesus this week? What about last week? How about this forthcoming week this week? What will it be like? Well, the first thing, you have to know the facts. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. Those are the facts of the gospel. A person cannot believe on Jesus, cannot rely in Jesus unless he or she knows the facts of the gospel. But knowing the facts is not exclusively all that it means to believe in Jesus. If you and I would walk around uh, in uh, your neighborhood today and knock on doors, a lot of people would know about Jesus. We'd say, hey, you heard of Jesus? Oh, yeah. What did Jesus ever do? Well, isn't the story he died on the cross for our sins, was buried and he rose again? Oh, they know. they're believers. Well, you have to know the facts in order to believe, but just knowing the facts doesn't make you a believer. It's not any less than that, but it's more than that. And so then you must mental assent, accept those facts as true. Yeah, there was a man in the first century who lived who was called Jesus. I believe that. Yeah, the story is he died. I was told that. Okay. And uh, he rose again. Uh, mental assent. Uh, and, and I've used these illustrations before. I just find them so helpful to be clear. Forgive me for restating them. Phoenix Police Department picks up a toddler walking precociously in a neighborhood and they said, this doesn't look right. And they rolled up and said, hey, dude, where's your house? He said, I don't know. I can't find it. And they said, hey, we'll help you find your house. Get in the car. What? You ever been in a police car? No. You like being, yeah. Okay. So they got him in. They said, all right, now listen, let's start. You tell us your name and we'll find your house. To which he replied from the back of the cruiser, baloney. Oh, no, 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 no. Come on. You tell us your name, and we'll find your house. Baloney! So they take him to a precinct station, trying to solve this riddle, and they get a Reese cup out of the vending machine. They say, all right, young man, listen, now we're here. You give us your name, we'll give you this Reese cup. To which he replied, baloney! About that time, a dispatcher gets a call from a hysteric woman. I've lost my son, I've lost my son. Oh, man, we think we can find, let's, let's start in the beginning. What is your son's name? To the incredulous response of the dispatcher, she said, his name is baloney. Now, did the Phoenix Police Department have the facts? Yes. Could they accept them as true? No. They didn't think anybody would ever call your son baloney. 
They thought it was a bunch of baloney. I have a friend who doesn't believe NASA ever sent anybody to the moon. He knows the facts of Neil Armstrong, but believes it never happened. No, that, that didn't happen. They, you know, jumpsuits at night, grainy cameras in the Mojave Desert, jumping around, you know, and built the American taxpayer out of a lot of money, he argues. Well, you say, that guy knows the facts. He can't accept them as true. You know, some people say, yeah, I know the facts about Jesus. He died on the cross first. I've never been able to accept them as true. But even accepting them as true, yeah, Mounts, I believe. I, 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 yeah, I believe. Even that is not what the New Testament is describing as saving faith without the element of a commitment of our will. Let's say I'm at your house, you're mowing your backyard around your swimming pool, and I'm drinking pink lemonade. Let's say you're married and I'm with your husband and, and what you're doing out there mowing while we're drinking pink lemonade and the air conditioning, I have no, it's a hot day. <laughs> we hear the, the lawnmower blows up, you catch on fire. And I look at him, he looks at me, we both run out the back door. And he says, honey, jump in the pool and the fire will go out. Now he is offering her a saving message. Now if she does not hear the message and she does not know that the fire will be extinguished by the water, she can die this far away from the remedy. But if she hears the message and she cannot accept this too, why are those two urging me to get in the water? I don't believe that would make any difference whatsoever. She doesn't accept it as true, she'll die. Further, she can hear the message and say to herself, you know what, they are right. If I would jump in the pool, I would be saved. But here's the deal. She'll burn up on the sidewalk next to the remedy unless she commits her will to that person. How will we know if she believes the saving message? She'll get her carcass in the water and it will bring her to be saved from those flames. So it is. Some people know the gospel about Jesus and reject it. Some people know the facts about Jesus and accept the facts as true, but they've never committed their will to the person and built their life upon all that he said to do. How about you this morning? Eric, I believe. Well, do you? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? Have you then been brought to the confession of your mouth? Now, by the way, I am not as impressed with professions of faith and so-called personal testimonies as other people are. I'm for them. I love them. I'm just not as impressed. You say, Eric, where'd you ever get that? Well, how about Jesus, who said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty miracles in your name, do these wonderful acts? And yet I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. 
So I think Jesus cautions us against radical, quick conclusions about professions of faith, and I am very much for professions of faith, just not impressed by them. After professions of faith, you want to see a sustained life of obedience. If any man and woman or boy or girl is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things are passing away, and behold, all things are becoming new. Where are you this morning? Faith in Christ is rooted in our hearts and is more than mental assent plus profession of faith. The second thought is the possession of gift righteousness issues in a confession of faith in Christ. Okay, Eric, you've convinced me law hyphen righteousness, that's not going to take us anywhere. If faith hyphen righteousness takes us anywhere, where does it take us? It takes us into a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And as we are brought into that relationship, there's a relationship between our hearts and believing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and our mouths through which a confession of faith is made. Now, historically, the coming out party of coming to faith in Christ in the church has been baptism. So you say, Eric, why do we do those videos before baptism? We do those videos before baptism because with the heart, we believe. And with the mouth, we confess. And so we rehearse those stories, back to that profession of faith, we rehearse the stories of receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus said once in Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So if from the heart we believe that God has raised him from the dead, from the mouth we speak of our trust in him, our reliance upon him, and the joy of knowing him. So we confess indeed with our mouth. Now, if you're here this morning and you say, Eric, well, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. I have believed in my heart. I've committed my will to him. Great. Have you professed with your mouth through baptism, which is the coming out party in the New Testament, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? I would love to talk to you about that. If that has not yet happened in your own journey with Christ, think of baptism. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21. We don't give you a, bowl, a bar of Irish spring and say, no, you know, wash yourself up in there. It's all ceremonial, nothing special about the water. We, you know, we buy it from uh, northern Kentucky water, you know, and stick it in there. And, uh, but it's a picture. Here's my life before I came to know Jesus. I'm dying to that old life. I had no hope. I was full of guilt. I had a sense of shame for where I've been. But I buried that old life, and I've been raised up new in Christ. This is who I am now in Christ, a new creature with a future and a hope and with forgiveness and life and wholeness. Notice that true faith grows inside out, first from the heart that believes to the mouth that confesses. Have you bore witness of your faith in Christ through baptism? Commitments of the heart issue in confessions of the mouth. Joyful confessions. Finally, three summary comments. How does the Apostle Paul summarize available grace? First, God's free gift of salvation is not a white elephant gift. You say, Mounts, who would want that gift? Who would want that? I, I, I'm not enamored with... Uh, like Christmas party stuff and white elephant things. In fact, I, I, I love to eat the food, love to have the fellowship. And then as soon as the white elephant game starts to break out, I, I slither for the doorway, you know. 
who needs to hold the toilet seat or whatever else you're given for a year before you re-gift it the next year, you know, I just, I'd rather sit around and talk, but uh, I know some people really enjoy that. If that's your favorite thing, I hope this Christmas it's really, really good. Notice chapter 9 and verse 33, he said, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a quote from Isaiah 26. He repeats it again in verse 11. For everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is not the bum steer gift. You know, who would want to believe in Jesus? Well, how about the receipt of the riches of God in knowing Jesus Christ? That doesn't sound like a booby prize to me. That sounds like the marquee gift that we would want. He who believes will not be put to shame. I love Psalm 17, 15 that says, when I awake, I will be satisfied in his likeness. You know, there's a lot that we don't know about the passage of death under our Lord. We know we'll be with Jesus. Not a lot else is described, but I love this blanket statement from the psalmist. When I awake, I will be satisfied in his likeness. None of us are going to wake up in glory and say, wow, and we've been there before, have we not? It got all jazzed and hyped up about something. We read an advertisement. We were told about this trip or this experience. And we got there and got halfway through it and we're going, you know, where's the beef? You know, what, this is a nothing sandwich. And I read all that stuff and worse, I paid all that money and got here. No, no. There's going to be no sense that when I awake, I'll be satisfied in his likeness. There's going to be no sense of, wow, this is a real disappointment. Nobody will have that in glory. We'll be deeply satisfied in a way we've never been. Verse 11, bestowing his riches upon all who call on him. You talk about one rich and he offers it to us. Is that how we view the gift of righteousness? The riches of God shared with us? Secondly, the riches of the gospel are neither remote nor unavailable. That's this word near. It's near. What's he saying? It's near us. The voice is near us. You hear that in verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. What's that? The articulation of the gospel, the invitation to believe, it's right here, right now. It's available. It's not remote. It's available to all. Remember, there's no distinction. To the Jew, it's available. To the Gentile, it's available to the whole world. He's used this phrase, no distinction, in Romans 3.21, and that was, if you're a Jewish person, here's the bad news. You're sinful before God. If you're a Gentile person, here's the bad news. You're sinful before God. There's no distinction. But here, he uses that same phrase, there's no distinction. If you're a Jewish person and you need Jesus, he's available to you. If you're a Gentile person and you need Jesus, there's no distinction. He's available to you. The word is near you. The gospel of Jesus Christ, wherein the promise of righteousness has come. The message is near and available. This is why he's going to go to that section. How will they believe in him whom they've never heard. That's where he goes next. That's God willing, that's where we'll be next week. The riches of the gospel are available this morning. Finally, everyone, Jew or Gentile, can call out to the Lord to be saved. I want you to look at 10, 12, and 10, 13, and read it not like you're in Texas. Now, in the English translation, uh, it does not distinguish between second person singular, you, as an individual, 
and second person plural, or as they say in Texas, you all. It, it just shows up in the English text as you. But what's interesting is that in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all of you individually who call upon him. Verse 13, for every one of you individually, second person singular, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here, rather than some mass general call, it's a call to individuals, to your heart alone. Where are you? God is calling. Remember uh, first grade? Now we were duped, but it, it was cool for a while. Uh, we, we, we were encouraged to bring in the, uh, we take the labels off of cans, put a hole in the bottom, put a string on it, you know, and um, give it to the girl two rows over. It's like, hey, can you hear me? And then she'd put it up to here. Oh, I really hear you. Well, say something back. Hey, I, I, uh, hey, how'd you do on that math problem? You know, then you ask me something else, you know. Uh, but we, we were had, you know, it was the Alexander Graham Bell version. You know, and I, and I realize we've, we've progressed. We, we don't do that anymore. But uh, go with me just for a moment for the illustration. It was one calling to another. You know, this stuff of call, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It shows up in Romans 8. Remember 8.30? And those whom he predestined, he also called. So here is God calling us. Notice what this is. You ever pick up your phone? It's like, miss call. Oh, she called. I better call her back. This is us as God's people responding to God's invitation and calling to us. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My cousin had a tough life, really tough growing up. And uh, Paul Dixon, president of Cedarville University, was, we scheduled him to preach and had some meetings with him. And I said, Becky, you ought to come. I want you to come and listen to this. And that morning, Paul Dixon preached on Romans 10, 13. In fact, in my text, I should write the name Becky right there. Because she came and he stood up and he offered a simple message. It was just this. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In that service, God awakened in her a yearning to be delivered from her sin. In that service, God awakened in her a knowledge that she could but call out to God and be saved. And that morning, in the simplest terms, as she was beginning her relatedness with Jesus, she just said, God, I heard what you said. I, I want to embrace what I've heard and I call out to you to be saved. I've prayed and wondered if God would not want to use this Sunday and this text in the intersection of your life to bring you to him. So I want, to you, I want you to have that opportunity to respond and call out to him. So let's pray. This is our time to respond. What is God saying to your heart? What is God saying to mine? I want you to pray. Maybe there are those who are with us this morning 
who in this moment are doing the very thing that this passage discusses. You are calling out to God to be saved. I want you to know he hears our prayers and our cries and our calls. It's not confessing with your mouth, but as we are in the Lord's presence praying here this morning, if you have called out unto the Lord to be saved today, I want you to stand up and then be seated after you stand up. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Heavenly Father, you know the torments of a life apart from you, both temporally and eternally. And you've invited us through Jesus to the glories of a life with you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that when we call out, you hear us. Father, speak to hearts, work in lives, use your word to show us afresh the beauty of Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.